Check. Well, good morning. Good morning, Pillar Church. If we could get ourselves to our seats, we're going to continue in prayer. Jesus said our, his house is a house of prayer. His Father's house is a house of prayer. So we're going to pray. Y'all come on in. It's good to see people back in the house. It's nice. Uh, Father, we give you all the praise. All the glory is yours. We're grateful. We're grateful that you've given us this opportunity to hear from you, to grow in our love for you, in our zeal and passion for you. Lord, would you give us grace and faith and all that we need to worship you well this morning? As Pastor Eric said at the beginning of this service, Lord, we, we don't worship you because we feel like worshiping you. No. No, Lord, we, we worship you because you're worthy of it. Praise is yours because you're an almighty king. And so we sing praises because you're worthy. And because you're gracious, you then cause us to want to worship. You put us in our, a, a mindset, a, a state, a feeling, a, a mode to desire to sing praises to you. If we would just obey it at the outset. If we would just stop from allowing our feelings to be our kings and queens if we would stop allowing our feelings to be our God in our given moments, that we would worship you because of the truth of who you are, that we would be governed more from truth than how we feel, more about from the truth than what we think we might want to do. We know you're, you're king, Jesus. We know this. And so we praise you because of that truth. And sometimes you're gracious enough to, to give us the desire to praise you anyway. And so this morning, Lord, we praise you. We praise you not because we want to, Lord. A lot of us have had weeks where we don't want to praise you. Some of us have news or experiencing things that are leading us to not want to worship you right now. There's others of us who are worshiping you because they're in desperate need of something. And so they're coming to you to get. And that's not wrong, Lord. You said you're the giver of good things. But our pattern shouldn't be that we only come to you to get. Lord, we come to you because you've gotten us. You've gotten a hold of us. That you've captured and raptured our souls unto worship to you, O oh God. That you've regenerated our soul. That you've given us life when we were dead. That you propitiated your wrath by the blood of your son. And we praise you because you're worthy. We praise you because we want to. We praise you because we're, great, we're, we're grateful for what you've done. Would our response of, prayer, of praise this morning be a sweet aroma to you, a sweet sound to your ears? Would the singing of the saints be joyful to you? Lord, would the singing of the body be joyful to you? Would you enjoy it and help us to enjoy singing to you? Lord, you are worthy of praise. 
Fill us with your spirit this morning. Lead us through the truth of your word. Be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning, Pillar family. My name is Pastor Canaan. Um, go ahead and open in your copy of God's Word to the book of Exodus as we're going to be continuing in our series in the book of Exodus. We're in Exodus 17. While you're turning there, I want to remind us of the year 1944. 1944 was a memorable year. The place that we're going to be thinking about in the beginning of this message is the European Theater of Operations. If you know anything about me, you know I love history. The European Theater of Operations was a territory that, that is uh, uh, connected to World War II. World War II was well underway. Hitler and the German war machine had a, a firm grasp on Europe at this particular time. 1944. They had invaded and taken over Poland already, and they had already invaded and taken over much of France at this particular time. And it looked inevitable that Hitler's army would soon take over all of Europe and it would be under German control. But brewing in the background, if you remember this, brewing in the background, there was a counter plan against Hitler in Germany. There was British, American, and Canadian forces devised a plan to invade Europe to stop Hitler from his continued conquest. But Germany, being good with technology, intercepted British, American, and Canadian intelligence. And they found out that the American army, the British army, and the Canadian army were going to invade Europe through Calais, France. And so what Germany did, which was a wise thing to do, is they girded up the beaches of Calais with tanks, mortars, bombs, guns. They were ready to defend. It was going to be the greatest military defense of World War II on the beaches of Calais, France. They were ready. And it would have took a miracle for the United States and British forces and Canadian forces to penetrate that beach. This, was, this is real history that happened. But there was one problem. Y'all remember what the problem was? They were focused on the wrong front. Calais was a decoy. The American forces, the, German, the uh, British forces, the Canadian forces allowed Germany to pick up false communications. So they would place the majority of their army on the beaches of Calais while they planned to invade on a southern front in a city, a town, a beachfront called Normandy. And we know that name, Normandy, it became known as D-Day. Although they thought the battle was going to be fought and won at Calais, they ended up fighting it at Normandy, and the German forces were unable to adequately defend the beaches of Normandy. And if you know anything about that, it was hard already. It was hard to, to take that particular part of land in Normandy. What they did, they ended up breaching the beach and penetrating through into Europe. This miscalculation played a major role in the fall of Hitler and the German war machine, all because they were focused on the wrong war front. The battle was won on the southern front. This morning, we see the people of Israel, and we see ourselves in a similar situation. And we're going to glean that from Exodus 17. We're finding our, there's a people, the people of Israel are finding themselves unprepared for the imminent war that's about to be thrust upon them. They're unprepared, they're ignorant, they're vulnerable, 
That's how the people of Israel are defined right now, unprepared, ignorant, and vulnerable. They've been walking through this land vulnerable. All do they, little do they know that there's a war about to be thrust on their front. And because they're unprepared, ignorant, and vulnerable, they're liable to make the same mistake that the, Germ that the German war machine did. And what's funny is that that is the same situation that most of us find ourselves. Spiritually, we find ourselves unprepared, vulnerable, and ignorant. We walk around this world as if there's not a war raging around us for the allegiances of our souls. As if we're not being influenced every moment of our lives by something or someone. That TV and radio play no role in how we think. Oh, we're foolish to think that. Something wants you. Something is after you. It's always been after you. It's been after you since you've been a little kid. Something wants your allegiance. Cereal boxes are built in such a way that they draw the attention of children to them because they want your money. And there's an enemy that is real that wants your soul. He wants to lead you to unbelief. He wants, you to, he wants to lead you to believing that you got this. Don't, no need to trust God. That's where he wants to lead us. But because we live in America and we're afraid to talk about spiritual things, we leave ourselves open to their attack because they're not real. We leave ourselves vulnerable and ignorant and unprepared. But God this morning in this text wants to remind us of a 2,000-year-old truth that will keep us from committing the same fatal mistake that the German war machine made in 1944. That although we may be weary from the battles of life that we're in, and although we may not feel or see any hope for our particular situations that we are in, God is going to remind us through this text this morning that if we focus on the right war front, his hand is mighty to lead us to victory. If we focus on the right war front, his hand is mighty to lead us to victory. And the victory, of the, and the victory in this war is found on the bloody cross of Jesus upon the hill of Golgotha 2,000 years ago. Look with me in the book of Exodus, chapter 17. So we're going to start in verse 8. And you know how we're going to do it. You guys have in your hands your cross-reference sheet. We're going to use that a lot. I'm going to reference stuff a lot. So just make sure you have your cross-reference sheet ready. Starting at verse 8, it says, At Rephidim, Amalek came and fought against Israel. Let's stop there. Now, the first thing we should consider is who's this Amalek cat, right? Because Amalek showed up and it is, it is starting a war with, with the people of God, with Israel. Amalek isn't a person. Amalek stands for the Amalekites. They're a people. The Amalekites and the Israelites have a constant friction throughout much of the Old Testament. There's constant beef between the Amalekites and the Israelites in the text. They're always squabbling together, always fighting together. And the, the, the friction didn't start in this chapter. It's actually a beef that started during the days of Jacob and Esau. You see, the people of Israel are descendants of Jacob, but the Amalekites are descendants of Esau. You'll find that in Genesis 36, verse 12 and 16. We know that the Amalekite people, even though they probably heard 
of all that Yahweh has done to the nation of Egypt and the gods of Egypt, even though they probably heard about this, they had little to no respect for the God of Israel. How do we know that? Well, we see a commentary on that in Deuteronomy 25. Look at your cross-reference sheet. Deuteronomy 25, verse 17 through 18. Moses says, remember what the Amalekites did to you on the journey after you left Egypt? They met you along the way and attacked all your stragglers from behind. When you were tired and weary, they did not fear God. This term fear here doesn't mean that they, were, that, that they didn't have enough. They weren't afraid of God. No, the term fear here is with respect to respect. They didn't respect God. They had no respect for God. They had no respect for his people. Amalek didn't engage in any dignified, respectable warfare. What they did is they nipped at the heels of the back of a tired and weary and unprepared people. Where I'm from, we call it, when we say we, we got a problem with somebody, you're going to fight, you're going to say, all right, y'all you know, bang the fair one then, y'all bang the ones. What does that mean? It means y'all square up in front of each other and you go at each other. But it's a chump move to sucker punch somebody from the back. But that's what we see the Amalekites doing. You see them nipping at the back of children and women and the elderly and they're thirsty and they're hungry and they've been on their feet all day and they know that they're vulnerable. And so they come from behind and start picking off people and robbing them. Picking them off and robbing them. Look at Exodus 17, verse 8 and 9. It says, At Rephidim, Amalek came and fought against Israel. Moses said to Joshua, Select some men from us and go fight against Amalek. Tomorrow we will stand on the hilltop with God's staff in our hand. Now we're not told how Moses responded to the news that the people in the back were getting picked off. We're not told what he did. But what do we know about Moses? And what do we know about Psalm 55, 22? We know that Moses is accustomed to bringing the burdens of himself and the people to God. And so it's not unlikely to think that in this particular situation, God, I mean, Moses takes this situation that he's heard and he's brought it before the Lord. And now the Lord has instructed him. He's given him something to to do. What are you going to do? He told him what he's going to do, most likely. And we've seen God deliver them time and again. Now, immediately, we're introduced, well, in this text, we're introduced to a dude named Joshua. Who's Joshua? Joshua is Moses' assistant. He's Moses' right-hand man, and he's one heck of a military leader. That's who Joshua is. Joshua's a beast in the text. You find him being his assistant in Exodus 24, verse verse 13, and Exodus 33, verse 11 in your cross-reference sheet. We know that Joshua and Moses were really close because Moses ended up giving Joshua his name. His name was Hoshea, and he changed his name to Joshua, Numbers 13, 16. So in this particular time of trouble, Moses calls his right-hand man to handle this really important situation. Now, if we're paying attention to what Moses said, what Moses said in verse 9, then you already know that God's about to do something big. You may look at verse 9 and say, well, Cain, Pastor Canaan, how do you know God's about to do something big? He didn't, there's no indication. There is an indication that God is about to do something amazing, something big. And if you followed along with us, you see the indication of what God's about to do. Look what he said. He said, select some men and go and fight against Amalek. But look at this, this second part is what it is, verse 9. Tomorrow, first of all, that word tomorrow is a trigger word in the text. When you saw the God of Israel hacking up the gods of Egypt, he would always say, well, tomorrow it's about to go down. Okay, well, tomorrow it's about to go down. So all of a sudden we see that same word, tomorrow, oh, it's about to go down. What's he going to do, though? 
I will stand on top of the hilltop with what? God's staff in my hand. You already know the staff that's about to go down. He got the staff. When the staff is in the hand of Moses, the power of God is about to do something amazing. That's what we're seeing in the text. The staff of God has been used to do amazing things and, and be used in amazing ways. Look at your cross-reference sheet. It turned into a Debo snake. It actually says that in your cross-reference sheet. It turned into a Debo snake and ate up the other magician's snakes, snake staffs in Exodus 7. It turned the water into blood. It was used. It was used to bring the plagues of the frogs and the lice, Exodus 8. God used it to split the sea in half, Exodus 14. When Moses and Aaron have the staff in hand, God tends to do things. The staff is nothing more than a piece of wood. This, a staff, a shepherd's staff, it's, it's Moses' shepherd's staff from Exodus 4. Moses already had it. He probably crafted it himself. There's nothing unique about the staff. It's just a piece of wood that you would use to goad sheep back into the, into the fold, and you would use it to defend the flock from, from enemies. It's just a piece of wood, but it's funny how a common thing in the hand of God becomes unique, becomes used in a mighty way. God can use the mundane to do amazing, and that's what he does in the text. The fact that Moses said that he's going up there with the staff of God in his hands seems to display his faith that God was about to show out. If nothing more, the staff is simply a symbol of faith and trust in a mighty God. That's what the staff is. The staff has no power. But faith has power. Trust has power. And so when he goes up there and he grabs hold of his staff, it's signaling within himself that he's having faith in the God who has power. That's what he's doing. This is like some of us, we have trinkets and things that we take with us because for some reason it reminds us of something, right? When you grab that thing, you put it in your pocket, it reminds you, but he grabs the staff of God. And he's like, yeah, it's about to go down. It's like he needs that reminder. Let's see what God's about to do in verse 10. Joshua did as Moses told him, and he fought against Amalek. While Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. So we've already known who Aaron is, right? Aaron is Moses' brother, and he's also Moses' mouthpiece, because what's wrong with Moses? He has a stuttering problem. Something's wrong with his speech. He, has, he's in, he's in, he's not, he doesn't speak smoothly, he says. And so God graciously gives him his brother and says, all right, your brother will speak on, on your behalf. You'll find that in Exodus 4, 10 through 17. But we're introduced to this new dude named Hur. This is the first time we're introduced to her in the scriptures. And what we know about him is found uh, here and in Exodus 24 and other places that he's a trusted ally and friend to Moses. Her is another trusted friend and ally for the people of Israel. So what does Joshua do? He obeys Moses. He gets his ragtag. Remember, this isn't a military that left Egypt. These are chattel slaves that left Egypt. They ain't ready for the, for the war. So Joshua, who's a great military mind, gathers a ragtag group of teenage boys, 20-year-olds, 30-year-olds, says, all right, fellas, we got to fight. It's about to go down. I don't know what it's going to look like. I don't promise you're going to live. Imagine how hard this is. But they're attacking our women and children in the back. And our elderly are vulnerable. And Moses told me to get you and let's go, squat up. So they ready themselves. They get ready for the war. Exodus 17, 11. 
Mount Moses. Let's go back to 10. Joshua did as Moses had told him, and he fought against Amalek, while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went on the top of the hill. Verse 11, while Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. But whenever his hands went down, Amalek prevailed. Let's paint the picture of what's going on in this particular passage. What's happening? Israel's traveling through the wilderness. They're thirsty and they're weary. Be in the narrative. You're thirsty and you're weary. You've been traveling. Your feet hurt. All of a sudden, this guerrilla warfare cat start attacking y'all from the back where you're vulnerable. And they're picking off your grandmother and your children. Moses looks to Joshua and tells him, squat up, get the military ready. It's time to defend ourselves while he, Aaron and her go on the hilltop with the staff of God. Now, I know my sinful inclination is to be like, Moses, why don't you get a sword and squat up with us? Where you going? Aaron, her, why y'all going over there? The war's over here. What's really good? What's happening? That's how I tend to think when I read the text the first time I read it. I'm like, why isn't he fighting with them? Kings fight with their army. They go to war with their people. That's what I'm, so I already got a problem. I was reading the text. I'm like, what's really good? But it says that in verse 11, when Moses held his hands up and presumably he has the staff of God in both of his hands because as you read the text, you see a progression from his hand to his hands and then you see another thing that indicates that he probably has a staff, which we'll go, we'll go into. He probably has a staff like this and he's holding the staff up in the air. Now the war is on and popping while Moses is on top of the hill like this and he's probably watching people in bloodshed down there. And so he's holding as a motivation to keep his hands high. But what inevitably is going to happen over the course of time? His hands will drop. His shoulders will get weak. You ever sanded a ceiling? Ooh, burns you up. You're trying to find things. You're doing this. You're doing whatever it takes to keep them hands up, right? Well, he's holding them up. And Moses is old. He's over 80. He was 40 years in the, in the, in, with Pharaoh, 40 years in the wilderness. He's 80 plus years old, probably 90 something at this point. And he got his hands up, holding a, a, a big old wooden stake in his hand. If the staff stays lifted up, Israel prevails. But when the staff comes down, Amalek's, the Amalekite army prevails. That's motivation to keep it up. How long did they keep it up for? Not 30 minutes, not two hours, but the entire duration of the war he has to keep his hands up. Because if his hands go down, they lose. Most of us couldn't do this for 20 minutes with nothing in our hands. Look at verse 12, Exodus 17. When Moses' hands grew weary, they took a stone and they put it under him. Y'all see the Christ symbol? The symbols. <laughs> They took a stone and they put it under him and he sat down on it and Aaron and her supported his hands, one on one side and one on the other side so that his hands remained steady until when the sun went down. He said, tomorrow we're going to we're going to war. They, you presumably strike as soon as the sun rises. So he's probably like this all day long. Mo, Aaron on one side, her on the other side, holding his hands up. He's now seated on a stone to keep his body erect and straight. Because if he lets it down, he sees his cousins, nieces, nephews, his people get massacred. I got to keep it up. 
This is stressful for Moses. Be here. That's hard. It's all here. Verse, chapter 17, verse 13. So Joshua defeated Amalek and the army with the sword. Now stop there. Don't miss this. Did y'all see that there was a war on two fronts? There was a war on, in two locations in the text. But only one of them was deserving of our attention. Did you notice the lack of detail as it pertains to the war that Joshua waged against the Amalekites? There's no details at all. That's not normal. There's no mention of how many military divisions Joshua had. There's no mention of the heroic acts of any of those untrained soldiers. There's no list of who lived and who died or how many lived and how many died. You see that oftentimes when you read of wars in the scriptures, but this war has none of that. And you got to ask the question, why? Why was so much of the ink spilt on this front rather than on the war front down there? Because you would think that the war was won down there. It's almost like it was left out on purpose, and indeed it was left out on purpose. Those details were not given to us on purpose, not because they're altogether unimportant, but because they would take our minds away from the truth that God wants us to see and remember from this text, that God is mighty to see them through the battle so long as their faith lies in him in the battle on the hill. You see, although the battle was fought in the trenches, real people with real swords fought a real enemy, and there was real blood spilled, and there was real bravery and courage, there was a real beef happening down there, but that's not the focus. That takes our minds away from the strength that actually allows them down there in the trenches to win the fight. That's not where the battle is won. God is pointing our eyes to the place where the battle is truly won. The battle is won on the hill. That's where the battle was won. That's how they had victory over the Amalekites. What happened on the hill was of utmost importance. It was the most important thing. The power of God was on display so long as the staff of God was lifted high on the hill. Guys, the truth that this battle was won on the hill by the power of God lifted high is true for me and you as well. We can't forget that. It's true for you and me as well. You might not be swinging a sword, but you're in a battle nonetheless. And it's got our eyes focused on all these minute details where we're forgetting where the victory comes from. We do fight a real enemy with real plans that does real damage to your mind and your emotions. That's real. Y'all deal with people and things every day. Real damage happens to, to, when, we, when we interact, when sin is in the picture, when our enemy provokes us to do things that are ungodly toward one another. It really does stuff to us. It ain't just me, it's you too. We experience real pain on this side of heaven. But we can't be over, overly focused on the wrong war front. You ever try to resolve a conflict between you and the other person, but all y'all can focus on is the conflict between you and the person? Does it ever get resolved? He did, she did. He said, she said. But the war rages, and guess what? At that point, hands are down. You both about to lose that battle. 
We got to remember that there are two battles raging simultaneously and that victory on one front will inevitably lead to victory on the other front. But you got to believe that it will truly do so. Otherwise, you won't spend your time battling on the front that matters. That's what happened with Germany. No matter what they thought, we're going to Calais, we're defending Calais, we're sending the, the tanks to Calais, the Gatlin guns are going to Calais, but the war was going to be fought on Normandy. They were so focused on Calais, they didn't believe that the war was worth fighting at Normandy. Oh, yeah, we heard about it, there was a percentage, uh, but the intel's good enough. No, it's this. Here, wrong front, what happened? Demise. Demise happened. Failure happened. They lost the war. Like the Amalekites... Sin and Satan are always on the prowl looking to devour us as God's people. I didn't say it. The text said, look at Genesis chapter four, verse seven in your cross reference sheet. It says sin is doing what? Notice what it's doing. Notice the terms. It's descriptive. Sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you. Y'all get the, y'all see the, the, it's like a, it's like a, a tiger, a lion that's hiding in the thicket. It's ready to pounce. Here you are. Yeah, this stuff's not real. <laughs> oh, I'm focused on this stuff over here. While sin is just waiting for the opportunity to pounce. And it's easy because you're an easy target. That's why we do it so easily. That's why we go off the gasket on each other so easily. That's why we, we, we lust and cheat and do all kinds of things toward one another and toward God so easily. Because we're not ready. We're vulnerable. We're unprepared. We're not thinking about the battle. Sin is just waiting to get us. We're easy prey for him. But what's the instruction of Genesis 4-7? It says, sin is crouching at the door. It's desires for you. But what? You must rule over it. Look at 1 Peter 5-8 in your cross-reverence sheet. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion looking for anyone he can devour. If that's not fighting words between sin and Satan, I don't know where else to find it in the text. It wants you. Satan wants you to fall victim to sin the same way he fell victim to sin. And it's crouching at the door, and your nature doesn't help. Since Adam, we've been a fallen people. And it wants to lead you to unbelief. It wants to lead you to self-sufficiency. Isn't that what Amalek was hoping and praying? You think Amalek didn't hear about the, 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 the major world superpower of Egypt? crumbling at the hands of Yahweh? They heard about that, mother. They know. Well, we just going to come around here and hope they're self-sufficient. Start picking them at the back and hope they just come fight us. That's what our enemy wants from us. He wants you to trust you. Don't trust you. He wants you to lean on you. Don't lean on you. He wants you to fight it the way you think you're supposed to fight it. Don't fight it like that. What do we know from the scriptures? Uh, march around this wall seven times, it's going to fall down. What do you do? Nah, don't work that way. What happens? You lose the war because you refuse to do things the way Yahweh has instructed us to do them. And then we complain to Yahweh when our battle plan fell through. God, why didn't it work? I tried to do this. You focus on the wrong war front. You focus on doing what you wanted to do. You put all your eggs in the wrong basket. Tell me it ain't just me. I know what y'all too. Sin and Satan's goal is to make you like the Amalekites with no fear of God before your eyes. 
He wants you to be a respecter of yourself before you are a respecter of God. He wants you to worship our culture before you, before you worship God. One of Satan's schemes is to worship, get you to worship anything but God. Doesn't matter what it is. Doesn't matter. He doesn't care what you worship as long as it's not God. Worship family? Got it. Ha! Got Yahweh out the picture, though. Worship culture? Got it. Because I got Yahweh out the picture. Worship your health? Got you. You ain't... You're not dependent on God for your culture. You're not dependent on God for your health. You're not dependent on God for anything. That's where he wants you. No fear of God before your eyes. That's where he got me all the time. Trusting in me, doing things in my, my way. Oh, I'm wise and I'm smart and all this kind of stuff. He got me believing that, that stuff. No, I'm in I'm needy. I need help. I need God's help. Is that any of you this morning? Be honest with yourself. Is that are any of you in a state of active unbelief? Some of us live in a habitual state of unbelief, and you may not realize this, but you're in rebellion against God because you identified more with this world than with the Lord who created you. If you are self-sufficient as a rule, you are identifying more with the creation rather than the creator who made you. And you are at enmity with God, James 4, 4 says. Because you trusted the world's word rather than God's word. You trusted your words rather than his word. Some of us in here, that's not us this morning. Some of us in here just trying to figure things out, trying to get our heart right, trying to get our mind right. And this is what God is calling us to do. God is calling us to submit to the truth of his word this morning. That's all he wants you to do. Submit to the truth of his word. His word will do the work. You know I could apologetic half of y'all up in here, right? But it does nothing. There's no power in that. The power is in the word of truth. If you would but open your eyes and behold what it says, God will take that, give you spiritual life, and draw you unto himself to worship the king despite what you want to do. Because he's worthy of it. He'll lead you there to fresh water. It's what he does. It's, I don't know how he does it. He regenerates the heart. He's the power. He's the potentate. It's monogistic out here. He just does it. And so I encourage you, if that's you, you're in a, a place of unbelief, read the Gospel of John. Just read it with your eyes open. Read it slow. Let it do something to you. Read the epistle to the Romans. Let it do something to you. I want you to, for the first time maybe in a long time, get real with the God of the Scriptures. Tell him your fears. Tell him your thoughts. And then repent and believe. That's what God wants you to do. Tell him your fears. Tell him your thoughts. Tell him all your questions. Put it all on him. He, he's a big boy. He can take it. And then repent and believe. That's what he wants from you. Jesus gave his life as a ransom for many. Mark 10, 45. And part of the many is people like me and you. He doesn't cast us away. He says, come. I've given my life. Come. Jesus is good, Jesus is kind, but Jesus is also king. And he's worthy of worship and honor and glory. And he's calling all people everywhere to repent of their sin. Acts 17.30, it's in your cross-reference sheet. I didn't say it. The word said it. He's calling everyone everywhere to repent as a kingly edict. Calling us to forsake ourselves and to follow him for the forgiveness of sins and purpose in life.
Don't let sin and Satan lead you to a state of unbelief. If you're a Christian in here this morning, the manner in which sin and Satan strike is similar to what we see how the Amalekites strike. Notice how the Amalekites struck the most vulnerable parts of the people of Israel, right? The back, the stragglers, probably the elderly and the children and the women, probably in the back with a thin uh, guard of men there. And that's how sin and Satan tend to hit us or uh, t- tend to hit us also, hit us where we're vulnerable, right? You know what sin and Satan like to attack? In our prayer request spots. Y'all know the places y'all be asking for prayer for all the time over and over again? Those are the same spots Satan tends to hit in those spots, right? He hits us in the place where we're already naturally inclined to struggle. That's where he's going to hit you. So if you struggle with anxiety, guess what he's going to do? Stress you out. It's easy. You struggle with loneliness, he's going to isolate you. Struggle with shame, he's going to bring up things from your past. You're going to hear people talking about those things. And you're going to be scared to confess those things to one another because you don't want to get judged. You're ashamed. So that brings distance between you and people and a lack of transparency. Therefore, you don't repent and have accountability to grow in Christ. You just stay alone on your island struggling with your shame. You struggle with anger, he's going to get you mad. He's going to tick you off with things that make you easily angry. Whether it's something from the news, whether it's your children, he's going to strike you in the place where you're easily inclined to fall already. This is why it's good to have self-awareness. Where are the areas that you tend to already have uh, to walk on, on ice or at? What are the things that you tend to fall into easily? Know those things. At night, think about those things and know that those are easy places for you. Those are stragglers in the back, easy to get picked off at. And then put brothers and sisters around you who can help gird the back ends of your, of your faith. Those places where you need that. I need accountability in this area. If it's lust, you need your brothers praying for you and checking in on you at that right hour of the night where you tend to slip and fall. You need that. So confess it. Talk about it. But since Satan wants you to, no, no, no. Anything, he'll attack you with anything and attack you anywhere to get your eyes off Jesus. That's his ultimate goal. You tried to deal with these realities and these sins and these habits with self-help books. I know you've done it because I've done it. You tried to deal with some of these things with productivity books. You tried to deal with it with that seminar you went to, went to to make you a better you. Right? You did all those things. I did. The, I know you did it. I did it. These things all have their place. They all are helpful in their capacities, but the battle's not won on that front. Again, he got our eyes on something else in order to attain something that only victory on the hill can attain. Understand this if you're a Christian in here. Your battle for peace is not won through meditation. That's not how you get peace, Christian. You don't get it through meditation. Your battle for hope is not won through someone's belief in you. People shouldn't have the power to lift and and crush your self-esteem like that. Your battle for joy is not won off that financial come up that you just had from the government. That's not, your joy shouldn't come from that. Your battle for the provisions of your family, not won by how many hours you work at work. Nope. That's all ground level warfare. You got to work. Little financial things help you out. That's all good stuff, but that's not where the battle is won. The scriptures tell us different. The scriptures tell us, look at your cross-reference sheet of John 14, 27. It says, peace is won for us when Jesus was lifted up on the cross at the hill of Golgotha 2,000 years ago because he promises peace to all those who trust his name. 
That's how you get peace. What did Jesus say? Peace I leave with you. Peace I give to you. I don't, uh, I do not give you, I don't, I, I'm sorry, I do not give to you uh, as the world gives. Do not let your heart be troubled or fearful. How do you get peace? Jesus gives peace. You want a living hope? Living hope was one for you when Jesus was lifted up on the cross 2,000 years ago on that hill. When Jesus was raised from the dead and we too can be raised to eternal life. 1 Peter 1.3 tells us how to get living hope. Look at it. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope. Through what? The resurrection of Jesus from the dead. That's where we get our hope. For everything, we, we rest in the resurrected Savior for everything. We have hope in that. Joy, you want joy? Joy comes from the presence of, uh, joy comes from God's presence, which Jesus won for us when he was lifted up on the cross on Golgotha Hill 2,000 years ago. That's what he won for us, proximity with God. Sin separated you from God, but when Jesus died on the cross, resurrected, he tore the veil between you and him for those who have faith in his name. Now you have intimate proximity with God. And what does that give you? Joy. Why? I didn't say it. Psalm 1611. You reveal the path of life to me. What does he say? In your presence is abundant joy. That's where I'm going to get it. At your right hand are eternal pleasures, the scripture says. Provisions for your family? Got to work. Got to work. Yeah, you do got to work. Work. You don't work, you don't eat. That's good. But that's not where the battle is ultimately won. Provisions for bread was won when Jesus was lifting up on that cross on Golgotha Hill 2,000 years ago where he made us righteous before God. And, and the scriptures say that never has God let the righteous be forsaken. Look at this text, 2 Corinthians 5.21. He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us. Why? So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Psalm 37.25. I've been young and now I am old, yet I have not seen the righteous abandoned or his children begging for bread. Provisions come from God. Even those of us here who have experienced lack of work, didn't God provide? There's been times where me and my family made very little, but somehow, some way, we didn't even ask for it, bread showed up at the door. It was beautiful. It was amazing. It was great. That's the truth for a lot of people who live out on these blocks, too. Somehow, bread keeps showing up at the door. And most importantly, the battle for our eternal soul that's at stake was also won by Jesus upon the hill at Golgotha 2,000 years ago. We cannot afford to place our hope in man-made solutions to eternal problems. We, we got to stop putting our hope in man-made solutions when these are eternal problems. We have to look to Golgotha Hill for salvation. We have to look for, to Golgotha Hill for eternal security. We have to look to Golgotha Hill, which is the place where Jesus was crucified to defeat sin and Satan. Victory is won on this front, and it, it will inevitably lead to victory in you and for you. He'll change the disposition of your heart. You may not get the thing that you're asking for, praying for, but you'll realize your need for that is vastly less than what you thought it was. Because God is the provider and sustainer of what you need and who you are. What happened on Golgotha Hill 2,000 years ago is that Jesus disarmed Satan and his minions through the power of the cross. You see that in Colossians 2.14 in your cross-reference sheet. What did he do? Jesus said that if he be lifted up, 
he would draw all peoples to himself. And Jesus said that he's the Lamb of God. Uh, uh, the scripture says that Jesus is the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Your enemies, sin and Satan, have been dealt an eternal blow by the person and power of Jesus. And the war was won on Golgotha Hill. But it's funny, if we focused on that war, we've never seen that reality or that truth. And what's God going to do? One day he's going to blot them out of existence forever. Just like he promises to do the, to the Amalekites. Look at verse 14. of Exodus 17. It says, The Lord then said to Moses, Write down on a scroll as a reminder and recite it to Joshua. Stop real quick. Why is God instructing Moses to, re- to write this down and recite it to Joshua? Where was Joshua? Swinging the sword, right? Joshua probably comes back like, yo, Moses, ha <laughs> ha. We won. Get the sword, wipe the blood off it like a dog. Put it back. <laughs> Woo, I can see it. I'm picturing it. It's crazy. But what does he want her to know? One, he, and that's probably not true. Joshua probably understood what was going on because Moses told him in the beginning. But what, what's, gonna, what, what's he promising him? He's going to give Joshua and Moses some assurance. He says in verse 14, then the Lord said to Moses, write this down as a scroll, as a, as a reminder, and recite it to Joshua. I will completely blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. It's funny. Joshua fought the war, uh, uh, the physical war that went down, but he promised that the fruit of his labors are not going in vain. God will still prevail over Amalek no matter how many soldiers died under your command. We're still going to win this thing. The enemies of God's people in the text were dealt a death blow. Victory was secured, but there's still time on the clock, and that's why he gives them that promise. So until the Lord calls them home, they got to fight. But they fight not in their own strength. They fight in the strength that God provides. Look at verse 15. This is what Moses does. Moses built an altar, and he named it, the Lord is my banner. That's where we get the word for, for Jehovah Nisi. Right? The Lord is my banner. A banner, Nisi, the, the concept of banner, it's a pillar or a pole where at the top there's a large flag that flies in the wind like this. And it says that the Lord, they put, the Lord's name is on that. They are representatives of Yahweh now. They're like, listen, he even helped us win in victory. You know, when you win, you put your little flagpole in the ground like it's, it's a sign of victory. That's what's going down. Oh, we won? Clack, This is Yahweh's turf now. That's kind of what's going down. He erected the altar as a pole. It said, Jehovah Nisi, the Lord is my banner. And then in verse 16, he gave, him, he gave him that promise again. He said, indeed, Moses said, my hand is lifted up toward the Lord's throne. The Lord will be at war with Amalek from generation to generation. Here's our call to you. The call to you is to lift your hands up to the Lord's throne and to use it as a place of remembrance as to where the victory is won. No matter where it is that you find yourself in this particular stage of your life, you can't be overly focused on the war on the ground. you got to be focused on the war on the hill. When you focus on the war on the hill, it's amazing how victory comes on the ground. And so raise your hands above your head. When you sing, raise them as a remembrance, as a memorial, as a Jehovah Nisi, as a banner unto who whose you are and who can no longer claim you. Sin cannot, Satan cannot. You are God's and you will remember that you are his by raising your hands to the throne of God. It's a call to action. Win the battle here. Endure the battle down there. Win the battle here. You'll outlast the battle down there. Ragtag, no prep, 
No skill in this area, battle still won because the God of the universe is on your side. This is what we do. Father, I pray that you will put us in a place of raising our hands to the throne of God and remembering you as our banner, that you are worthy of our praise and our glory and that the victories that we seek in life are not won by our own ingenuity or man-made schemes, that we can put away our Dr. Phil books and we can trust in the scriptures and the God of the scriptures to give us wisdom that we need for life, that we can trust that you're going to transform the disposition of our hearts and change the desires of the yearnings of our soul so that they are in line with what you want for us, so that those things that we were previously had a problem with, those things that we previously were fighting over become so small in light of the eternal. But we forget the eternal because our hands are lifted, not, are not lifted high. Our worship of you, our banner has our name on it and not the name of, of the Lord. It doesn't say Jehovah Nisi. It says our name. It says our wants. It says our desires. That's what we worship. That's what we put our hands up to. That's what we hold others to. But Lord, you're saying, no, we hold our hands to your throne. We worship you, and then you bring victory. It sounds like a plan that won't work, but Lord, you've shown us time and time again how it works. It does. It's like the people of Israel fighting against Jericho. You say, walk around the walls, Lord. I praise God they didn't have a better plan. I praise God they didn't think of a better way to scale the walls, but it would, have, it would have resulted in a massacre of your people. But today we do that very thing. You tell us to praise me anyway. You tell us to trust in you anyway. You tell us to, to bring our petitions and our burdens to you anyway, but we don't and we are massacred as a result. We're broken as a result. And then we got to sin to cover up our sin. But Lord, if we would just bring our, our burdens to you from the, from the beginning, if we would just trust in your word from the beginning, if we would just fight for your truth from the beginning, we wouldn't have this problem. Yeah, the things would still happen. Yeah, we'd still have friction and problems in this world. But we would conquer them. Yeah, we still got to swing the sword, but our focus isn't on the sword. The sword is just a tool. The power is in the faith of your word in your hand and your ability to act on our behalf. And so, Lord, lead us to that place of worshiping you and trusting you. Help me to trust you, God. I'm so prone to not trust you. I got this weight that I put on my own shoulders that I got to lead this thing. And I got to be a certain way to lead this thing. And I got to know certain things to lead this thing. And I got to be read on certain books to lead this thing. This church isn't my church. This church isn't my church. It's your church. It's your people. I got to get that weight up off of me. Put it. It's yours, Lord. I'm just here to play my position. This is your team. This is your people. Coach us. Humble us. Take unnecessary burdens off us, off of me. Remind me I'm dirt, but you're great, and you do great things with ordinary things. Thank you for your mercy and reminding me where to fight in the trenches in my prayer closet with my hands lifted high. Teach us to fight there first, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.